Navy Federal has a mission to put members first by making their financial goals a priority. Receive a lifetime of membership benefits to help you and your family accomplish your life missions, like a full suite of financial products designed to fit your needs, 24-7 live support, and access to more than 300 branches on or near military bases. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information. Call 1-888-842-6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app. Message and data rates may apply. These miscovered mountains are home now for me, but my home is the lowlands and always will be. This is the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman, and I'm a staff writer at the Ringer. As always, we are part of the Ringer Podcast Network, which is itself a part of the ringer.com. Uh, we're going to get to Ben Lindbergh and Zach Cram in just a second, but first, I wanted to share with you some good news and some bad news. The good news is that today uh, is a Luka Doncic heavy day. Our teenage Slovenian overlord uh, has taken over the site with Jonathan Charks's uh, article and Isaac Lee's latest hit, Hallelujah. Uh, so go listen to Isaac's song. I really enjoy working with him and uh, we'll miss him when he goes and starts his recording career. Uh, the bad news is that this is going to be the last scheduled Ringer MLB show of 2018. Uh, we're leaving our every Tuesday schedule behind for the off season, but we will be uh, coming back to produce on-demand episodes for trades and signings. If big news happens, we'll come back and do a show about it. So we will see you intermittently, uh, but we won't be gone completely throughout the, the holiday season. Uh, and now without any further delay, here's Zach Cram and Ben Lindbergh. So I am here in snowy as hell, Kalamazoo, Michigan. Zach, is it snowing where you are? Uh, not currently, but it has the last two days. Ben, is it snowing where you are? <laughs> it is not, but it did last week, if, if that counts. Well, it's going to snow. It, I can see your your uh, weather <laughs> of the future out my window right now. Yeah, um, well, it's late November. It's a safe prediction. Yeah, speaking of late November and predictions and so forth, we have, well, maybe not predictions, but we have news. Actual news, uh, of which there was very little over the Thanksgiving weekend, thank God. But uh, on Monday, the Atlanta Braves made a big move. They signed Josh Donaldson to a one-year, $23 million contract. He turns 33 next week. He battled shoulder and calf injuries in 2018. This is what uh, people in the business call a pillow contract. So, uh, Zach, what are your thoughts on on Josh Donaldson to the Braves? We all sort of love this deal for Atlanta. Josh Donaldson had a down year last year, mostly because he suffered from just a litany of injuries and never seemed to be healthy but he still hit decently well. He had a 117 WRC+, plus, which means he was 17% better than average. And that only seems like a downturn because of what he had done before since coming over uh, from Oakland in 2014, uh, 2015. He had a 150 WRC+, plus or better, in each of his three previous seasons in Toronto. He won the MVP. And it's not like he's that old. He's still in his early 30s. So I think putting him in the middle of the lineup with Freeman and Acuna and Albi is already there really helps strengthen that and gives them a piece they needed. Yeah, I was curious to see if he would go for the pillow contract because I thought he did enough down the stretch with Cleveland once he came back. And it was only 16 games, but in those games, he hit basically like MVP Josh Donaldson. So I thought that might be enough to propel him to a multi-year deal if he had wanted one. And I would guess that he could have wrangled one if he had waited a while and, and taken a little less per year. But I guess he figured I can still be that MVP level Josh Donaldson. And so I'll take a one-year deal with a playoff contender and maybe put myself in a position for a bigger score next winter. And it's interesting, obviously, because we've all been expecting the Phillies to splurge this winter and probably Probably they still will, but the Braves striking first here with a, a fairly high-profile free agent. And I guess this means that they're now going to make Johan Camargo into their Marwin Gonzalez, Ben Zobrist type, which is interesting because every team wants one of those these days. It, it seems like you can't play in modern baseball with gigantic bullpens unless you have one of those multi-position players on the bench. And they in particular need a guy like that. Because Dansby Swanson had some up, ups and downs last year. Ozzie Albies had some ups and downs. And, you know, it's not, I don't think it's it's uh, a certainty that Donaldson's going to play as little as he did last year. But it's absolutely a possibility. He seems to think that getting off the turf in Toronto and not playing uh, those extra nine road games, it was like 90 games a year on on turf if you play in Toronto or Tampa. Um, 
So getting back onto the grass, he says, is going to help him with his his calf injuries. We'll see if that's true. But somebody's going to get hurt. Somebody's going to have a slump. They're going to need Camargo somewhere. So, I, you know, there's, I think fans um, are still lagging behind teams a little bit. You think of one person for each spot in the lineup, and, you know, you can go too far as to just not having it as enough at-bats to go around. And I think, you know, the you mentioned the Phillies. They ran into this last year. Um, but having one guy who can play everywhere, like, you can make – you know, we saw this with Marwin Gonzalez where he plays 10 games a year at seven positions and wherever that big hole opens up for the Astros last year, was left field. That's where he plays, you know, an extra 50 or 60 games. So uh, Camargo is great for that role. It's a, a great move for, for this lineup. Um, they hit Nick Markakis cleanup 157 times last year. Um, <laughs> and Nick Mar- Nick Markakis had a great year last year, but over four years in Atlanta, he had a 400 slugging percentage. And I... You know, I'd probably take the under on Donaldson being that seven win. You know, he had four straight seven win seasons four uh, you know, uh, three seasons in a row of about 150 OPS plus. I'd probably take the under on that, but I'd take the over on what he did last year. And when he was on the field last year, he was good. Like this is, you know, like you said, it's not it only looks like a down year because he was so good. But before that, so, I, you know, if, if anything, like if I were the Braves, I'd, I'd want I'd almost like want to promise him another year, you know, like it, it seems like a, a pity that you'd only have a player like that for one season. It also opens up additional flexibility, not just with Camargo. And I think my early prediction is that Camargo takes over as the starting shortstop at some point next year. I think he might actually be better than Dansby Swanson. But even beyond that, one of the Braves' top prospects is a third baseman named Austin Riley, who played most of last year at AAA, and he hit very well. He's basically ready for the majors at this point. Maybe they could uh, there's been some talk about converting him to a corner outfield spot where they have an opening. He could become a trade piece. It just gives them a lot of flexibility with you saw the Brewers and the Dodgers do very well with that last year of having 13 position players and not just eight who can really help a team on any given day. Yeah. And I mean, the we saw that's so obviously an advantage in the playoffs. The trick in the regular season is getting everybody enough at bats and enough innings in the field to keep everybody happy. Um, so we'll see what Brian Snicker does with that. But yeah, I mean, I, I had a piece go up just this morning about how in a, it, it seems like every team in the league is going towards the tank or they're, you know, we see a lot of teams in that mid 80 win range um, selling off instead of going. And we'll talk about this a little bit later with Paul Goldschmidt. They're selling off pieces instead of adding them, trying to push and become, you know, a 90 win team or a 95 win team. And that's creating such a buyer's market that you can really make out. I think the, the Braves, I, I love the signing for the Braves. I, you know, I think, and I think Donaldson, you know, one year and $23 million is a lot of money and he'll get a, a shot to hit the free agent market again. But like if he hits free, if he had hit free agency coming off of last year's contract, he would have made the JD Martinez contract or would have made JD Martinez money, if not more. So you're, you know, if you're looking at, at this from the Braves perspective, you're, you're getting essentially just the first year of that without any of the um, risk, the lo- you know, the older he gets, the longer the contract goes. And they also added Brian McCann on a low-dollar deal in the ceremonial Tyler Flowers platoon role that was occupied by Suzuki. And, and the Braves have had one of the most productive catching tandems in the majors the last couple of years, kind of two guys who really have improved themselves as their careers have gone on in Kurt Suzuki, who's become a good hitter, and Tyler Flowers, who's become a great defender and a pretty good hitter, too. McCann is not the same guy. Obviously, he's not what he was when he was with the Braves and not even what he was early in his Astros tenure or with the Yankees. He really seems to have declined defensively lately. Even his framing seems to have deserted him and not much of a hitter this past year. So it's kind of like a feel good, bring back the guy who was here in his heyday and came up with us sort of story, but also just the the veteran leadership role. And McCann is supposedly the greatest teammate, as I think Colin McHugh tweeted. So this is kind of a adding a, a veteran guy with ties to the area to a younger team and uh, having that sort of leadership in the clubhouse, which has some value, even if we can't quantify it. Yeah, I think that's where most of the value comes for McCann. I mean, just looking at the way he moves, like, I can't believe he's only, he's not that much older than I am. <laughs> it makes me, you know, want to eat better than watching him move around the <laughs> uh, the clubhouse last year. Um, 
because he is old and creaky, and he you know he only had about a three hundred OBP last year. And we saw the t- the Astros they went with Max Stassi and Martin Maldonado and even Tim Federovich uh, down the down the stretch behind the plate. And um, yeah, I don't know how much value he gives you as a player, but I think it, that that clubhouse element, that sort of player coach role, um, could be really valuable on this team. And you know that was one of the the things that he did really well for the Astros. You know, McHugh's not the only person who who talks about him as a, a great teammate. You talk to, to guys who, you know, when I um, wrote about Andrelton Simmons, like, um, you know, guys who play with him in their early careers or, you know, in New York or, or earlier in uh, in Atlanta, I think he's got a reputation because of a couple of things that, that happened a few years ago is like being a, a Bud Norris type or a red ass. But that's, you know, I, Talk to him a fair amount when he was in Houston. That's not the guy he seemed to be. Um, mm-hmm. So I, it's been years since the one yeah. time when he blocked the plate. <laughs> that was he became the the face of like boring baseball and policing fun on the field. But he hasn't really seemed to be that and guy. You lately. certainly see the you know he didn't seem to have any problem with the the Astros were very demonstrative when they won the the World Series. You know mm-hmm. he didn't have any problem getting along as far as I know. With guys like Correa and Lance McCullers and, and Dallas Keuchel who were really outspoken. So you know I. Good clubhouse signing, probably, uh, probably limited on field value at this point. Um, you know, yeah, Brian, more playing time for Flowers. Let's yeah, say. good, good signing for you. I mean, we I, <laughs> yes. I actually talked to Ryan a couple weeks ago about when uh, the Braves moved on from Kurt Suzuki. So you know, this is yeah. <laughs> uh, if, if the Braves catching situation remains a, a an area of, of focus for us. So, mm-hmm. all right, so let's. We all like the Donaldson thing. Uh, this I, I'm interested to see what you guys think about Paul Goldschmidt because there there are a couple players uh, who are getting floated in trade rumors. You know, players who I don't know that you could really imagine uh, being on a on another team. And Paul Goldschmidt's one of them. Uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks had a, a little bit of a step back last year. They're losing guys, presumably losing guys like uh, Pollock and AJ Pollock and Patrick Corbin to free agency. So they're one of those teams that was competitive in the recent past and is deciding to rebuild. And that might include trading Paul Goldschmidt. So, um, you know, Zach, what do you, what do you make of this? Well, I think the first thing is just Paul Goldschmidt is a really good player and outside maybe like two or three teams like Atlanta, which is already set at first base. He would improve anybody in baseball. He's been a five win player or better for basically his entire career. Hasn't slowed down even last year with, Arizona adding a humidor to his ballpark it didn't really stop him much so he's still a phenomenal hitter he's very athletic he can run he can field uh he's a little bit older than you would expect just because he's one of those guys who wasn't really a top prospect and came up pretty late so he's already 31 years old he only has a year left of team control but you know Arizona made the playoffs two years ago they were close last year until barely missing in September and it's kind of what you were talking about in the piece you wrote today about how this team that's basically on the fringe and has a real chance at contending for a wild card spot might be giving up before the season's even begun. Yeah, and there are various reasons why we've heard some big names bandied about as trade candidates. We're about to talk about another one, Madison Bumgarner, but we've been hearing Robinson Cano rumors. We heard Zach Greinke mentioned as a, a trade candidate earlier this winter. We've heard the Cleveland pitchers, Kluber, Bauer, mentioned. And so far, those things haven't happened other than the Paxton trade. But yeah, to hear these names, it's, you know, when it's a team that has recently been in playoff competition, there are different reasons and motivations for each of these guys that I mentioned. But with Arizona, it has not been a long time since they were kind of going in and being competitive. I mean, they were competitive this year. So to see them do this, I think there's been a sense for a couple of years now that their core was getting up there, getting expensive, getting a little older that there was only so long they could keep this group together potentially. And as Zach mentioned, there's not a whole lot of team control left for Goldschmidt, but he remains one of the best players in baseball. And I I think we're probably past the point where you would say that he's one of the more underappreciated players in baseball, just because we've said that for so long that now I think he's more appreciated. I I don't know who the new person in that role is, maybe Anthony Rendon or someone, but it might be Anthony Rendon. Actually, that's that's an interesting question. Yeah, 
But, you know, I, I think there are a lot of teams that Goldschmidt would make much better because he is a, a perennial MVP candidate, if not ever an MVP to this point. But that is often a, a narrative thing where I think maybe getting him with a playoff team in a, a bigger media market, who knows, maybe that leads to more people appreciating Goldschmidt. But it's also that he doesn't typically lead the league in anything. He's just one of those guys who's great at everything and is just a really good all-around hitter who tends not to hit the most homers or win a batting title or anything, but he's just solid everywhere. Yeah, I mean, to him being underrated, he's made six straight all-star teams and he's finished either second or third in MVP voting three times. So, uh, you know, I think he's a a known quantity at this point, but one one thing that I think leads to him being a little bit underrated is you you look at him and you – He's well, I was going to say he's one of those guys that I used to think of as big before the current Yankees team was assembled. Um, <laughs> and you think that he's going to be like a you know 40 45 home run guy like a, a you know like a prime Chris Davis, but he's a high average high OBP player, you know, uh four times uh with an OBP of 400 or better. Um and he's never slugged 600. So like he's but that kind of player is very it's that he's valuable because he gets on base a lot. And once he's there, he could steal a base, which you wouldn't expect for about, you know, a first baseman of his size. Um, just a really solid all around player. And he'd fit in the middle of almost any line. If you think of, of certain teams, the, the Phillies, for some reason, have been uh, linked to him. Um, I guess they're undeterred by how badly it went when they tried to field three first baseman at the same time. So maybe they're, they're going to go for four or five. Um, Maybe we're going to see Paul Goldschmidt at third base this year. If if that happens, Um, the, the diamondbacks thing, it's, it's weird because a lot of these teams that I don't really think should, should rebuild. You can see the argument though, even if you disagree with it and their, their core sort of aging out of contention and the Padres are about to get good. They've, they're sort of adrift in that division with the Dodgers at the top. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it, it would take some doing for them to, to climb all the way back up to where they're not only like a solid number two to the Dodgers, but actually playing them on level terms. And, you know, it's just, it's a bummer that this is happening in so, so many places at once. Mm -hmm. I just ran a mid podcast play index query, by the way, from 2013 to 2018, most valuable player or position player in baseball, Mike Trout, obviously, but number two and number three in baseball reference war since that year, the two guys we just talked about, Josh Donaldson and Paul Goldschmidt. So yeah, really good players. To Michael's point, the one opportunity that these things kind of bring up is if a team that's on the bubble decides it wants to invest there are available players to help them do that. I'm thinking about like the Cardinals who uh, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch beat writer, Derek Gould has talked about, you know, they're in discussions with Arizona about possibly adding Goldschmidt. And they're a team that is always in contention, but has missed the playoffs the last few years. They're in a very strong division. Goldschmidt would really help them. Matt Carpenter was an MVP candidate last year, and he can move all over the infield. And, you know, they've been looking for another big bat. They tried with Marcelo Zuna last winter, but he didn't really pan out like they had hoped. So Goldschmidt could be a great addition for them. And maybe if we're resigned to the fact that some of these middle-class teams are going to intentionally take a step back, the best we can hope for is that other teams will take that as an opportunity to make their own investments. Yeah, certainly the, the Braves seem to be doing that. And the the Phillies are at least making noise about it, even though they haven't signed anybody. Although I will say, like, the swimming up against, up, you know, swimming against the current thing that element that makes this a good idea works less well when the only two teams doing it are in the same division. Um, so, but you know, the, the Cardinals were, were a potential landing spot for Donaldson. So this is a, I think a, a similar player, you know, high OBP corner infield guy, you know, and like you said, with Carpenter, they can, they can make this work and, and a lot of their other in, infielders can move around. So, you know, Goldschmidt is the kind of guy you make room in your lineup for. So we'll see. Yeah. Speaking of potential landing spots for Donaldson and also teams that don't necessarily spend when they could be contending, the Rays were also a team that had been mentioned as a possible destination for Donaldson. They probably aren't one for Goldschmidt. You never know. But they do need someone in that kind of DH role, at least. And a lot of people have linked them to to Nelson Cruz after they let CJ Crone go. And then he was picked up by the twins. And that was another one of those raised kind of Corey Dickerson moves Mm -hmm. that leads to them getting criticized for not spending, whereas they probably think, well, we're aligning our meager resources efficiently or or the resources that we've chosen to deploy in ownership's case. But they're another team that is very much 
at that point where they were a good team last year in a terrible division to be in if you're a a team on that bubble. But they are very much at that point where if they were to spend, I know how unlikely that is, but they could separate themselves from the pack of almost good enough teams too. That's They're so frustrating to me because they, I mean, they won 90 games last year. That's incredible. And not only do they have the lowest payroll in baseball, they had, they spent half of the major league median. So the, the major league median was about $140 million payroll. The Rays were at about 69 million. And how many more wins would that extra $70 million buy you? Like if you're not just, yeah, we talk about the Archer, you know, the Archer trade and the Zanino trade and the Tommy Pham trade. It's a lot of, they're getting good players who are major league ready, but there's a lot of just moving pieces around, you know, trading Malik Smith for a similar player at a more advantageous position or, or, uh, you know, trading Chris Archer for guys who could, for Tyler Glass now, who could take that role, but has more, um, more team control, you know, just they're, Get, they're doing the extra 2% thing to, you know, not mm-hmm. to be too on the nose, but that's all they're doing. And just imagine how much better that team would be. You know, you see that, you know, it, the CJ Crone thing is, is another move that like you can replace that guy for somebody younger and cheaper. But if that's if like if you're just taking your 90 win team and and just making it younger and cheaper without making it better, then, you know, what is this for? Like, what's, what's the point? You know, it's, and is, is the point that, you know, the, um, you know, the Red Sox all catch diphtheria next year and you could sneak and you, you know, you could somehow compete in that division. Like it's, it's just frustrating because this is a good team and, you know, Heim Bloom certainly looks like he knows what he's doing and ownership isn't, isn't supporting him. You know, they're not, it's, it's just a, a slap in the face by ownership to not, you know, not just, the fans, but the entire league not to feel the competitive team. Like this is a choice not to compete. And I just don't know what recourse, you know, the, the fans have because the league obviously doesn't care. I don't know where that came from. (laughs) I teed you up for that one. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so let's talk about Madison Bumgarner. Zach, I'm going to let you take the lead because you, you delivered, uh, some spicy takes last night when we were talking about this. I mean, I don't know if it's that controversial. I don't, think Madison Bumgarner is all that great anymore. I think he has shown over the last two seasons a uh, regression in a lot of key statistics. His strikeout rate went from 10 strikeouts in per nine innings in 2016 to eight per nine in 2017 to just seven and a half last year. His fastball velocity has gone down about a mile and a half from one of the fastest among left-handed pitchers to just kind of average uh, he's been helped out certainly by playing with San Francisco, but if you look at like his home road splits last year at home, he had a one six three ERA on the road. He had a four ninety seven ERA, and you can't just look at one year home road statistics there. But I think that does get at one of these underlying problems with Bumgarner, which is that he's allowing a lot more contact than he used to, and playing in one of the friendliest pitcher ballparks in the sport has helped him out there. But if he goes to a different team, I'm not sure if he would derive that same benefit and if you look at like his era he still looks great with an era around three the last two seasons but his fip is a run greater his dra is a lot higher so it's almost the opposite of the james paxson argument we had recently where paxson had sort of a middling era but much better peripherals which makes me more confident in his future whereas bumgarner is almost the reverse and i'm not sure if we're getting peep bumgarner or anything close to peak bumgarner back so so wait the the James Paxton freak injuries are not a, are not worrying but Madison Bumgarner falling <laughs> off his his uh what was it was it a quad ATV? bike yeah and, I didn't I didn't mention his injuries I don't I'm not concerned about him only throwing you know 200 combined innings over the last two seasons after throwing 200 every season before that I'm more concerned about his actual performance in those 200 innings because. You know, if you give him 180 innings next year, what kind of quality are those 180 innings going to be? Yeah, I agree. Well, his peripherals certainly have fallen off. And after I think it was six consecutive seasons of 200 innings or more, he has been in the 100s the past couple of years because of that injury in part. So he doesn't quite come with the durable workhorse who's guaranteed to give you 200 label anymore. And as Zach mentioned, the efficiency within those innings has tailed off too. He's lost some stuff, doesn't throw quite as hard as he used to. 
Obviously, he is seen as the ultimate gamer and clutch playoff guy. And the question is, do you bet on that being a predictive quality? If you are a team that expects to be in the playoffs, are you going to pay more for Bumgarner because of his playoff record? Are you going to trust that he can duplicate that in your uniform? I don't know. But the other really interesting aspect of this to me is Farhan Zaidi and can he come in? Will he have the the courage, I guess, or the boldness to come in and immediately dismantle the remnants of the championship Giants teams? Because you're in a tough spot where the Giants probably should rebuild as much as any team should. They probably should turn the page on those teams, but that's always a, a tough thing to do. And for a new executive to come in and say, not only are you going to be bad now, but you are not even going to get to watch the guys who remind you of when you were good. That is a, a tough thing to do, to come in before your team has even played a game and, and start tearing it down. Even if it's one of those things where, you know, if you're selling to a fan base, I think most Giants would, would agree with that assessment of the team that it's time to you know start taking this team apart. You know, this is sort of what, not to bring everything back to the Phillies, but this is what, you know, what they did in... 2013-14, you know, they never traded Cliff Lee. They waited years and years to trade Rollins and Utley. They never traded Ryan Howard. Um, you know, they took until 2015 to to trade um to trade Cole Hamels. And yeah, you know, those were those were tough things to to swallow as a fan, even if you know that it's that it's good for the team in the long term. But you know, I think this this honestly might be one of the advantages of bringing in Farhan Zaidi is he's going to be, he has no connection to those teams. He's going to be completely unsentimental about it. So he's, you know, got no reason to, to hang on to, you know, Brandon Crawford or, or Bumgarner. I think the, I think you're going to be okay as, as you know, in, in terms of not having unrest in the, in the streets of San Francisco, as long as you don't trade Buster Posey. Um, but yeah, this is, it's interesting. Cause you know, like Goldschmidt, you know, Goldschmidt is the, I would say the best position player, maybe the best player overall in, in Diamondbacks history. And Bumgarner has had so many iconic, even before 2014, has had so many iconic moments in that Giants uniform. It's hard to imagine him playing anywhere else. Um, mm-hmm. Here's a here's a stat to supplement what I was saying go before. For so Fangraphs tracks what they call pitch values, where they basically look at how effective each pitch is and then categorize them by type. So from 2013 to 2016, when Bumgarner was at his best, he had... Over those four years, the third best fastball among all starting pitchers, numbers one and two, were Kershaw and Scherzer. So that fits. He is one of the best fastballs in baseball. Over the last two seasons, his fastball has accrued below average results each season. So that might turn around. Maybe his health will improve and that'll help there, but certainly a lot more question marks than you would have had about him just two seasons ago. Yeah, and uh, to to the past two seasons, I'm honestly willing to to cut him a little bit of slack for that. Like the, that it's been a tough team to pitch on the past couple of years. And, um, you know, he's wanted to come back from injuries. Maybe, you know, he hasn't been a hundred percent when he pitched. I, it's definitely worrying and it would fit with the trend line of an aging pitcher. Who's thrown a lot of innings that he'd lose a little bit off his fastball. Um, and so certainly you wouldn't get for Bumgarner now what you would two years ago, but I, because the past couple of seasons have been so difficult, I'm perhaps more willing to entertain the possibility that that he could bounce back. But, you know, it's not it's weird having this much uncertainty about a pitcher who was as consistent as Bumgarner was for so long. All right, let's go to not even minor league baseball, not actually not even baseball at all. Uh, Kyler Murray, Ben, Kyler Murray's a football player. (laughs) Yeah, please Um, explain. (laughs) So Kyler Murray is the. He was the ninth pick in the draft. Uh, He was an outfielder at the University of Oklahoma who was a tremendous two-sport athlete in high school. Uh, Roger and I did a a segment. We've both written about him um, because he's relevant to both of our, you know, both of the sports we cover. Um, And the two of us did a segment on him at the draft. The A's reached for him. He was viewed as kind of like an end of the first round type of, of prospect. Um, and the A's not only reached to draft him at nine, they let him play football where he's done really, really well. Um, like he's going to be a Heisman Trophy finalist. There's a, a decent possibility that uh, that he could wind up winning the Heisman Trophy, depending on how you feel about Alabama quarterback Tua Tagovailoa. Um, shout out to Ben Glixman. Yeah, I don't have um, strong feelings about him myself. I would imagine not. No. Uh, so Kyler Murray has played so well in in college football and. 
the plan was always for him to play this one season in Oklahoma and then go report to the to the A's for uh, for spring training next year. And then he'd go through the you know he'd retire from football and focus on baseball full time. And after last week's game against West Virginia, he said, "quote I feel like I could play in the NFL, but as of now, playing Major League Baseball is the plan." And uh, Roger heard that as of now and shat a brick. So Zach, you know what are I don't know. Like, is, is do you think this is a, a danger for the A's? Like, could he renege on that promise and go to the NFL? I'm not sure. I ha- would have to, you know, learn more about what exactly they agreed to. If it was just kind of a handshake deal overall, I mean, certainly it seemed when he was drafted like this was going to be the plan no matter what. And there was a lot of questioning at the time. Well, what if he's as good as people think he might be in, at football? And he is the problem with Murray sort of from an NFL perspective is that he's pretty short. He's a running quarterback, which means that maybe teams won't be as high on him in the draft. But I don't know if I mean, if you're a football player in addition to a baseball player, but if you're a football player like Murray seemed like he wanted to be a few years ago when he was first coming out of high school and didn't even enter the MLB draft. And then someone comes to you and says you could be a first rounder and be a star quarterback at the age of 22 instead of you know, driving in buses around the middle of the country at, on a single A team, that probably has to be somewhat appealing. Yeah. And, you know, the size is a, is a concern. But at the same time, this is, you know, you look at the NFL, Drew Brees is going to win the MVP this year. Baker Mayfield was the number one pick uh, last year. Both of those guys are smaller than I am. So, like, it's not that size isn't as much of a concern as it would have been, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. Um, but the point about about minor league baseball, it's, in general, like baseball people get really smug about the bad labor conditions for rank and file uh, NFL players. Football is obviously more dangerous, not just because of concussions, but because of all the other niggling injuries. Like we talked about Brian McCann looking way older than 34. Imagine if he had been like an offensive guard instead of a catcher, like it would be even worse. And so there are so many reasons why baseball people get smug about pushing kids into baseball over football. But Kyler Murray is one of those people who has that legitimate option uh, to be a top 10 pick in, in both sports. And the payoff is so much greater. Like, you know, forget the the buses, just like how long is it going to take him to make the kind of money he could make as a, a first round draft pick as a baseball player, if he even makes it to the major leagues. So, I mean, the baseball payoff could end up being much bigger, <laughs> but but it would take a while to get to that point. And it's pretty tough if you're going to be a, a first-round draft pick in football, get a pretty big bonus and be in the NFL the next year, as opposed to baseball, where you'll still get a, a sizable bonus, but then we'll see. It'll take years probably for you to get to the majors if you get there at all. The odds are not great. And that's going to be tough for a a young person to turn down the prospect of almost immediate stardom and wealth versus long-term perhaps health and maybe greater earnings. But there's also the celebrity aspect of things. If you're going to be a, a baseball player, maybe you, you don't end up being seen by as many people. Certainly you're not, no not as well known, perhaps. Yeah, well, that's true. And, you know, maybe you don't end up doing the same endorsement deals or whatever. You're not a household name in the way that uh, other sports stars are. So there are a lot of good arguments on both sides. I mean, Ideally, for all of us, I guess he would just be the next two sports star. But I'm not sure that we're in a place where that is really yeah, feasible I mean, anymore. The, the thing that I'm honestly surprised that he hit as well as he did at Oklahoma after taking um, essentially two years off from from baseball and th- just being a position player, like the position that he plays, has a lot to do with why I think him going to football would be good for him. Um, one is if he were a pitcher, he could take those couple years off and then it wouldn't do that much harm to his to his development. But, you know, losing those reps, he's going to be behind the curve. He's pretty high risk for a big college position player prospect who performed well in college. And, you know, compare that to, to quarterback or to an NFL quarterback where if he's good, that's the one position in the NFL that actually gets paid and gets paid, you know, in that $20 million a year range that we were talking about with Josh Donaldson. So I think, you know, it, it might be... It's definitely the better decision short term. It might be the better decision long term for him to uh, for him to go to football. But just the whole thing at the draft just staggered me. 
that not only that he went so high that he but that he promised like he he said he would get back into football and then leave it. It all just seemed so unlikely based on Kyler Murray's, you know, he's been in and out of, you know, he went to Texas. There was a, a big um, issue with his re- recruitment between Texas and Texas A&M. He went to Texas A&M. He played, he transferred, you know, he's a baseball player. He's not a baseball player. He's a baseball player. Again, I, this, there are going to be more twists and turns with the story. I want to agree with Ben that it's a little disappointing that, the idea of him being a two-sport athlete isn't even a discussion. Of course, he's a quarterback, which is a lot more intensive, perhaps. You need a lot more reps than like Bo Jackson and Deion Sanders had when they were two-sport athletes. But I wasn't around to watch either of them. And looking at their respective highlights and sports reference pages and everything is really incredible to see. Like Bo Jackson was one of the best running backs in the NFL and an above-average major league hitter at the same time. And maybe I'm just greedy after a season of Otani, but I want to see a two sport athlete too. I don't. Yeah, me too. I, we've probably had this conversation at, at greater length, whether it's even possible anymore. But there's just, I mean, there's so much preparation that goes into those sports at the highest level. Now it can beat up your body so much just playing one of them, well, football at least. And just the, the level of talent in each is now so high and getting higher all the time that it's really, really hard to be a star or even a, a decent player in both when you can't devote the time to it that other guys can. So I just don't know. And, you know, at the same time, the, the salaries have climbed so much and other endorsements and, and ways of earning money that you definitely don't need to do it for financial reasons. So there are so many reasons not to do it that I just don't know whether we will see someone do it at a high level again. But I would love it because I kind of miss the heydays of of those players too. Yeah, and at the same time, I kind of want to know how good a baseball player Bo Jackson would have been if he had just concentrated on baseball. Yeah. Every high school jock, you know, plays multiple sports and has to choose one. And and for most of those, but there but there are guys who have a legitimate shot to go pro in baseball or football or football or basketball or something like that. And at, and at some point, um, usually during their college years, they pick one and. You know, I'd rather have the Joe Maurer that we have now rather than a Joe Maurer who tried to split time between baseball and football at at Florida State. You know, Tom Brady was a a top catching prospect. And well, that's a bad example because I'd rather have a reduced version of Tom Brady in the NFL and (laughs) and see how, you know, have him catch for the Expos and shorten his NFL career a little bit. Um, I want to see Kyler Murray become the best version of whatever Kyler Murray he, he chooses to be. And I'm mostly interested in this this story because he's so far along in his career and he hasn't re- you know it's still not decided which which path he's going to choose i i don't know i don't know if i'm going to be convinced that he's going to stick with baseball long term even after he reports next year um so we'll you know it's obviously there are more mundane applications of this for uh for the a's and what this means for their farm system and their draft but um if he does decide to go back to football but it's it's interesting and you know i don't know how serious this is if he's just uh teasing us or if we're um making a lot out of out of wording that he didn't think a lot about and he's got every intention of going to oakland next year but it, it's very interesting um so we're gonna take a break and we're gonna come back with uh some interesting but less fun news but we'll be back in a second Today's episode of The Ringer MLB Show is brought to you by Dark Sacred Night, the new number one bestseller from author Michael Connolly. Veteran detective Harry Bosch partners with Renee Ballard, who works the LAPD's night beat to solve the brutal murder of a teen runaway. The case unfolds with furious momentum, and according to the Wall Street Journal, Dark Sacred Night is one of the best and most affecting Bosch novels since Connolly began. Dark Sacred Night is Connolly's 21st Harry Bosch novel, as well as second novel to feature detective Renee Ballard, who first appeared in last summer's bestseller, The Late Show. Titus Welliver, the star of Amazon's hit TV drama, Bosch, reads the audiobook edition of Dark Sacred Night with an appearance from actress Christine Lakin as Renee Ballard on the audio edition as well. Don't miss a novel that the Washington Post calls darkly brilliant. Listen to the audiobook or pick up your copy of Dark Sacred Night from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you get your books. Go to michaelconnelly.com, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-C-O-N-N-E-L-L-Y.com to learn more. All right, so apart from the Josh Donaldson signing, the biggest news, like the actual thing that happened as opposed to trade rumors and so forth uh, in Major League Baseball over the past week has been uh, reporting by popular.info's Judd Legum about 
Major League Baseball donating $5,000 to the campaign of U.S. Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith, the Republican from Mississippi. If that uh, name rings a bell, it's because uh, she made news recently by saying of a supporter, quote, I would fight a circle saw for him if he invited me to a public hanging. I would be on the front row, which is not a great thing to say for a white candidate running against a black candidate in Mississippi. And she has, I think, appropriately been uh, uh, the subject of much public criticism for those comments. And numerous companies have asked for for campaign donations that they made to her campaign back. Uh, Major League Baseball is has also asked for its campaign donations back. Uh, but this news is notable for a couple reasons. One, they made the the donation a couple of days after she made those comments. And so Rob Manfred uh, addressed reporters today in New York and was, he attempted to distance himself from major league baseball's lobbying arm. So, you know, we disagree about a lot of things on this podcast. I think, you know, if we're going to get letters, I, I'm about this. I don't know what, uh, what you were expecting uh, coming in here. Cause we are, we are very much anti uh, anti offhand comments about lynching on this podcast. So, you know, Ben, you know, how, how did this happen? Well, it's a reminder, I think, that MLB is a big business and like a lot of big businesses has a lot of political influence that it seeks to increase by spreading money around and spreading money around very widely. They are not donating to the candidates whose policies they approve of. They're donating really to almost everyone, you know, in terms of incumbents because they have like 300 members of Congress over the past few years. Yeah. So it's not like they said, well, we like the message of this Cindy Hyde-Smith. Let's get her elected because we like her policies. Now, they should have said her policies are so abhorrent and her statements are so abhorrent that we won't even make our standard contribution to her. And obviously, now they wish they hadn't and they should have realized how it would look before. But it's a reminder, not that we really needed one, that MLB has a lot of stake, a lot at stake when it comes to the government. They want to protect their antitrust exemption. They want to make sure that minor leaguers are forever classified as seasonal workers so that no one has to pay them. They want to get a as big a slice of the gambling proceeds as they can. So, of course, they're going to give money to everyone. And so their initial statement explaining what happened here and then asking for their money back, essentially, was pretty unsatisfactory because they essentially just said, well, uh, yeah, uh, we were at a, a fundraiser, our lobbyists, and that's how it happened, which, well, yeah, sure, I guess uh, funds were raised. It was at a fundraiser. That didn't really explain a whole lot. Now, Rob Minford's more recent comments make it sound as if MLB's lobbyists have a lot of autonomy and they just kind of give to whom they think it would be the most advantageous to give to. And who knows whether he is kind of covering his ass or, or someone else's at the commissioner's office or whether he is being candid here. But it sounds like there is going to be more oversight now that lobbyists will have to have their donations approved before they actually go through so that MLB can avoid this kind of PR disaster. Now, you know, again, it's not like they are suddenly going to just support the politicians who say good things and don't support the bad ones. They're going to do what they can. They're going to gonna do whatever profits. they have to to make sure that they don't have to pay their most vulnerable workers a living wage. Pretty and much. They're yeah. sorry that they got caught yeah. supporting someone who said something racist. Yes. The uh, timing was terrible from a PR perspective because this happened after the most recent comments that elevated Hyde Smith to this level of of toxicity and kind of national renown where just donating to her was no longer really a, well, political preference kind of thing. It was like, this person is is bad and you can't support this person. So this was their third donation to her, though, in the past few months. And no one really made a big stink about the previous two because, again, they're constantly donating to everyone. And she hadn't said those things at that time, although I'm sure she said plenty of other bad things before then. But, you know, it's not like Rob Manfred was sitting there signing the check and sending it and saying, I support this politician. But it just reminds you that MLB is a, a big business. And 
it's going to get dirty at a lot of times because they're trying to save as much money and make as much money as they possibly can. And they're not going to put their scruples first. What scruples? Like, <laughs> Yeah, right. Well, it's, you know, and it's also a big company. So it's, it's, it's not exactly a monolithic thing. I mean, people who make up the MLB executive core, they support different politicians and have different political preferences. So they're donating things from this pack just to advance the cause of Major League Baseball, which is basically just giving money to, to everyone who is not going to rock the, the boat here. And I think one of the reasons the story has taken off is because it exists at sort of a tangled intersection of a lot of different things. One of them is the minor league pay, the bill that passed this year after a long time of not passing, perhaps because MLB has donated a lot of money to politicians on both sides of the aisle. But I think this donation specifically, it, it came at a time where MLB is confronting a lot of, of stories about its own racism. We were talking about the Seattle Mariners story last week. I think the investigation is still going on, but like in this case, specifically Adam Jones from the Orioles, or I guess he's a free agent now, but he tweeted about this, about why wasn't I invited to this dinner, kind of sarcastically thumbing his nose at this. And he has talked about his own experiences in baseball. And there are other people who have talked about that. So it does sort of pull out a lot of these threads that I, I guess the people in charge of the sport would prefer the fans and spectators not to be talking about. Mm -hmm. And one more thing, uh, you know, baseball kind of prevents, uh, presents itself as an equal opportunity employer and celebrates its own record in that area, which, you know, of course, Jackie Robinson was a momentous moment and broke the color barrier, but there was a color barrier to break in the first place. So the record of baseball when it comes to race relations is not perfect, as is anything in this country. So it's just a, a very, you know, when you're crowing about your own role in kind of tearing down some of those barriers. And at the same time, you're making this contribution to someone who, from all appearances, would like to see those barriers erected again. That is obviously very clearly hypocritical in a way that is going to come back to bite you. That was such a more diplomatic way than I was planning on making <laughs> that same point. Um, it's weird because on one level, like this is just sort of how corporate lobbying and and so forth goes and i think a lot of the outrage of major league baseball at major league baseball comes from um maybe not quite understanding that that big companies donate to everybody so they can get in a room with with elected officials and you know like zach said the major league baseball is getting a black eye over this because the thing that you know it's not like coca-cola lobbying cindy hyde smith for corn subsidies like the thing that they want is to not have to pay minor league uh, minor league players minimum wage and but the i mean just the self-righteousness of, of baseball of major league baseball uh, regarding race and Jackie Robinson honestly might be my least favorite thing about the league um one of the, one thing that i loved about this whole thing is Lindsay Adler of the Athletic was covering the Rob Manfred's comments this morning, and she quoted him as saying that uh, Cindy Hyde-Smith's comments about public hangar, quote, completely at odds with the values that Major League Baseball has always, always embraced, end quote. And uh, <laughs> she said later, wow, I'm getting ratioed for quoting somebody else uh, because Rob Manfred's going to flip his shit when he finds out about Tom Yawkey and Cap Anson mm -hmm. and Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Like, you know, nothing's going to happen about this except in five months, everybody's going to wear number 42 for one day and Major League Baseball is going to crow about how it solved racism 71 years ago. And there are just so many from the, you know, the gatekeeping culture to the way, you know, Joe Simpson's comments, um, you know, Jeff Passion wrote about both of these issues and how they intertwined. And I you know, did a really good job of it as always, you know, but like there's so many different strands that you can pull on to, you know, Major League Baseball has contributed or leaned into structural racism in ways that you can't do that. Or you, I mean, you can obviously because they do, but you shouldn't be allowed to do that and then pat yourself in the back, pat yourself on the back for like how the league, you know, solved race relations in this country when you're making the problem worse and through both intentional and unintentional ways in a, in a lot of uh, different aspects of the game. So it's, I don't know. I'm not shocked by by this donation. I'm it's I'm a little bit surprised by how sloppy, how amateur hour 
the league's handling of this has been from the lobbying effort itself to to Rob Manfred walking it back. Um, yeah. It's just another reason to be disappointed in the league for, uh, you said hypocritical. I don't, I don't even know if that word means anything anymore. <laughs> so here's a much less contentious <laughs> issue, unless you guys have more to say about this. No, I don't think so. But I don't know if the, the Hall of Fame is actually less contentious. Well, that's a joke, man. That's <laughs> okay. <laughs> As for explaining my joke. Um, we haven't talked about uh, the Hall of Fame yet, and we're about to go on a little bit of a dark period. So I want to get make sure that, that we, uh, just in case there are no free agent signings and we don't get a chance to come back on the pod before the uh, before the, the vote totals are, are released in, in January, I um, want to make sure that we touch this. Uh, there's been some stink about Mariano Rivera being the first unanimous candidate. Um, that's not going to happen, right? I don't think so. I mean, there have been many other players who, like Rivera, or really more than Rivera, had such an incredibly obvious case, and they weren't first ballot candidates. And whether weren't someone unanimous is a candidates, uh, yes, weren't weren't unanimous candidates, and you know whether someone is unanimous or even first ballot or later ballot doesn't make that much of a difference to me. And I don't look at a guy and say, oh, he's first ballot or he's not, or he's unanimous or he's not. He's either a Hall of Famer or he's not a Hall of Famer as far as I look at it. But there are voters who every year say, well, this guy wasn't unanimous. And so this guy can't be unanimous. And I don't think that will change. I mean, the electorate has shrunk in recent years as older voters who have not covered baseball in a long time have been trimmed from the rolls. And so in that sense, it's probably more likely that we could get a unanimous, but, you know, Griffey wasn't unanimous. We we haven't seen one yet. So I, I can't imagine that this will be the first. And the other thing is that I'm not sure that we should have a unanimous candidate at this point because there is just more reason to do strategic voting, I think, just to keep guys on the ballot because there has been this backlog caused in part by PED candidates piling up on the ballot. There are just guys that you kind of want to vote for just so they will have a chance in the future. And so if I were voting this year and I'm not eligible for another three years, I think I'd oh, probably wow, vote that's, for, that's yeah, I'm getting there. Yeah. But I think if I were voting and I was trying to decide between, you know, making Mariano Rivera a hundred percent or 99.8% or something. And meanwhile, I'm trying to keep, I don't know, Scott Rowland or someone on the ballot. I don't know. Hopefully I'd have room to do both. But if I were worried about someone falling off, it would be more important for me to keep someone above the 5% threshold than to make Mariano unanimous. I actually don't know if that's going to be as big of a problem for voters this year. So many players have been elected the last few seasons that I don't know if there are enough candidates now to form such a backlog as as we've seen recently. Uh, you know, there are 10 spots you can vote for on a ballot and looking at it, I don't see 10 names I would vote for. I think uh, among first-time people on the ballot, you have Mariano Rivera, you have Roy Halladay, and then after that, you don't necessarily have someone who's a particularly phenomenal case. Among are you a sneaky small are... hall guy? <laughs> That's what this sounds like. Because, I mean, this is I, I agree with your point generally that, like, there have been years in the past where there were as many as 18 or 19 players that I would at least consider voting for. Um, but I think you could fill up 10 easy. Maybe we have different standards. Yeah. But I, I think there are certainly players who have received less than 50% of the vote before who I would be inclined to vote for. Someone like Larry Walker, even Billy Wagner, I think deserves a lot more credit than he's been given. But I don't see more than, you know, eight names I would necessarily vote for. I'm perhaps wow. biased here. I don't think wow. Mariano Rivera will yeah. be inducted unanimously. Um, I think even if someone, you know, it just takes one voter to say, oh, I don't believe relief pitchers are as good as that's starting the pitchers. That's the other thing. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's going to be a big, there's going to be strategic voting and there are going to be old cranks, but I also think that there's, you know, I don't agree with this case, but there's a case to be made the relief pitchers are failed starters and, you know, it's not the, there, it wouldn't be one of the 50 worst reasons somebody's left a, a player off the, the Hall of Fame ballot in the past 10 years. Um, mm -hmm. Zach, give me your eight. And Ben, I'm going to ask you for your mock Hall of Fame ballot. So just, okay. you're, you're not getting out of this. I'm just warning <laughs> you, giving you a chance to prep a little bit. Okay. So mine are Rivera, Halliday, who I would have voted for even uh, before his tragic accident. Um, Edgar Martinez, Mike Mussina, 
Larry Walker, Billy Wagner. And then I think I talked about this with Ben last year. I'm very glad I've never had a Hall of Fame vote and haven't had to decide about Clemens responds. I don't know about those two, but I think even if I added those two to my ballot, that would still only take me to seven or eight. I haven't done the count off the top of my head. Manny Ramirez might be thrown in there too, but I think Ramirez, as the voters have shown, there is a difference between players who were accused of steroid use before the more widespread drug testing and the players who were suspended for it afterward. Yeah, I just eyeballing it. I think there are definitely 10 I would go for. I guess pitchers first, I'd go Clemens, Messina, Schilling, Halliday, Rivera. And then on the hitter side, I'd go Buns and Roland, Walker, Manny, and Edgar, who I, I think will get in this year because he's in his last year of eligibility and is pretty close. And there are guys on the bubble, but that would fill up my ballot. And I, I think I'd vote for all of those guys. I, I'm obviously a vote for the the stat line and don't worry so much about the the cheating guy. Yeah, my mine would be Bonds, Clemens, Mussina, Edgar, uh, Walker, Halliday, Roland, Ramirez, Mariano Rivera, and Andrew Jones. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think, it, you know, I if I had multiple votes, I'd, I mean, I don't have any votes, but if there were more than 10 spots on the ballot, I'd probably add Wagner. I'd probably think about, you know, Gary Sheffield, Todd, you know, maybe I'd take a, a closer look at, at Todd Helton or Sammy Sosa. Um, Schilling would be on my ballot uh, if there were unlimited spaces, but uh, there aren't. And there are more than 10 players I'd like to vote for who are total fuckheads. So he can go to hell uh, until a, <laughs> until a spot opens up. Um, my, my view on the PED guys, I, I think I'm at, at the very, very extreme where if a guy is eligible to be on the on the ballot, then you know, I'd consider voting for him. And even somebody like Manny Ramirez, who's not only been accused, but tested positive and been suspended, like he's got the numbers. And that's mm-hmm. sort of how I feel about, you know, it's definitely how I feel about Bonds and Clemens and Sheffield and other guys who have just sort of been whis- whispered about. Yeah. And I would understand if someone drew the distinction that Zach was just making between suspended and not suspended. That's kind of, I don't know. It's one of those, you want a concrete way to say Mm -hmm. this guy should be in and this guy should not. And that is one way a positive test or a a suspension is, is kind of a way that you can just sort of say, okay, well, I will don't have to wrestle with what he did and what he didn't and how much of an impact it had. I just, I know he, he cheated. We know for sure. So then I can just cross him off my ballot and not have to think about it. And so I get that. I just, I don't know. I, I, I tend to be in the camp that thinks that these drugs don't have that huge an impact, or at least that with the guys that we're talking about, the Bonds and Clemens and Mannies, that they're just so good that Mm -hmm. they would have been Hall of Fame players anyway. So if we were talking about someone who was just barely on the bubble and also seemed to, you know, Sosa, for instance. is Yeah, Sosa, Rafael Palmeiro, guys who don't really give you that. Uh, Guys who are, you know, forget about the PED stuff. You you have to think about whether they actually clear the bar or not. And then if you figure that they had some PED bonus, then that makes it even less likely. But with – Bonds and Clemens and, and Manny, uh, those guys were just so good that I think they're in regardless. Before we go, uh, like I said a couple times already, we're going to be taking a break. But before we do, some news broke during last week's podcast that I want to uh, want to recognize. Podcast favorite Nick Sine, who Ben <laughs> and I talked to last year, has announced his retirement. He didn't play in 2018 uh, as a former Blue Jays outfielder, outfielder at the University of Buffalo, um, where he was a uh, prolific getter hit by of pitches um and i just want to read out his his uh stat line 676 minor league plate appearances got hit by a pitch 70 times that's more than <laughs> once every uh every 10 plate appearances he retires with a batting line of 229 412 282 <laughs> um yes one of the fastest baseball players i've ever seen live too so he can like he could burn it, you know, he could do something once he gets on base uh, or he could because now he's going to be selling real, real estate or something. Um, so we wish him the best in in his future endeavors. And, uh, you know, I'll certainly miss miss watching him reading his stats. Yeah. Did you see him get plunked in person? Oh, I can't remember if I did. Wow. Um, History he hit, happening like, right in front of you. I know. I <laughs> I remember I remember a lot about the the game because I got lost on the way home. Um, and I remember 
I remember uh, thinking to myself, like, if I came all the way out here to the middle of the fucking woods and he doesn't get hit by a pitch, and he had like six or seven at bats as this game was like 14 to eight or something like that. Uh Um, And I don't remember if I actually saw him take one. Yeah. Well, tell people that uh, you I'll go did. back and read my story. I'm sure it's in there. Yeah. He, uh, I like players like him. He never got above a ball and it was pretty clear that he, he wasn't really going to. But yeah. the fact that he could exist at any level of professional baseball with that kind of batting line with a 229 batting average and a 282 slugging and a 412 on base. I mean, it doesn't work above a ball. And so that's why we don't see that kind of player in the majors. But just the fact that it ex- exists on any level of of the latter. That is why I love minor league baseball and independent ball and probably why I should love college baseball. Why you should love college baseball. (laughs) I was just going there. Um, All right. So that's everything on the, on the rundown. Um, So we'll be back, not on our regular Tuesday schedule, but you know, big free agent signings, you know, Eddie trades, big news happens. We're going to be doing podcasts as needed throughout the rest of the winter. We'll be back sometime in the spring. So there will be no confusion like there was last year, no fake feud between uh, Ben and myself like there was last year. Everything is fine. We're going to be back soon enough. Um, So I want to, I don't know, I'll miss you guys. Yeah. Well, hopefully it won't be too long, but we'll be talking. It's been fun and I'll talk to you in Machado signs. Yeah. So, you know, if you want another podcast, uh, you should email Matt Clentak at phillies.com <laughs> and tell him to sign Harper and Machado and we'll we'll be back to talk about it whenever that happens. So but until then I'll you know talk to you guys later. All right. That will do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB show. I want to thank Zach and Ben for joining me today. Thanks to Josh Donaldson, Rob Manford, and Mariano Rivera for giving us stuff to talk about. Uh, thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. I love him so much I bought a pop filter for my microphone finally. So uh, I hope you all love him as much as I do. And thank you for listening. Uh, enjoy the holidays, and we'll see you next time. Navy Federal has a mission to put members first by making their financial goals a priority. Receive a lifetime of membership benefits to help you and your family accomplish your life missions, like a full suite of financial products designed to fit your needs, 24-7 live support, and access to more than 300 branches on or near military bases. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information. Call 1-888-842-6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app. Message and data rates may apply.